0: So we've been reading through the Bible together uh, using a book called The 52 Greatest Stories of the Bible. and So we'll continue that. Um, there are three weeks left, chapter 50 this coming week, and then 51 and 52. And so what I've done with the preaching schedule is just kind of followed the book and preached um, particular text from uh, uh, that week's section. And so uh, I'm not going to do that the last for the next three weeks. Um, so just know as you're reading through, there won't be a sermon to accompany that. Um, what I'm going to do is take the next three weeks and uh, uh, do uh, three Christmas sermons. And then we'll come back on the last Sunday of the month. And I will, uh, the book, chapter 51 and 52 of the book, uh, are the, deal with the book of Revelation. And so what I will do on the last Sunday of the month is actually preach a sermon um, on the, uh, from the book of Revelation to kind of bring us to the conclusion and the end of our journey together uh, this past year in 2019. But what I want to do, I want to do a series, three-sermon uh, three series on the topic or the title, it shouldn't be a topic, it's a title, The Reason for the Season. The Reason for the Season. And so this morning, like I said, I want to call your attention to Matthew chapter 1. And our focus will be on verse 21, uh, even though we will in uh, just a few moments read verses 18 through 21, we will hyper-focus in on verse 21 this morning. When you hear the phrase, the reason for the season, we all know the proper response to this, right? Because we've seen it on bumper stickers, t-shirts, yard signs, the ant- or the response is, Jesus is the reason for the season. But yet, <clears throat> that response really lacks a depth, not because Jesus is shallow, for, for his depths know no limits. It lacks depth because we are shallow. The response is more cliche than it is Christological. And that's just a big fancy word for Christ focused an accurate response to the reason for the season should be sin sin is the reason for the season but it's not the fra- it's not our response to the statement the reason for the season and part of the reason is is because we're just shallow the other part of it is cuz none of us have enough depth about us to where sin is the reason for the season on a t-shirt or to put sin is the reason for the season on our bumper sticker or to put a yard sign that says sin is the reason for the season but in reality it is the reason for the season look at verse 21 of matthew chapter 1 i'm not making this up i'm gonna take it right from the bible she will bear a son and you shall call his name jesus For he will save his people from their sins. That word for is the purpose statement. It is the reason that Jesus is born. So Jesus does not even enter into our world, thus Christmas, without sin. Sin is the reason for the season. We celebrate this joyous season on our calendar because of sin. If sin had not entered into the world, neither would have the, uh, the Savior. The greatest rebellion this world has ever seen was brought brought about by the world's greatest response of love the world has ever seen. These angelic words recorded by Matthew reinforce the reason for the season. We cannot understand how fully magnificent this verse nor this season is apart from the greater context. So, Let's back up to Genesis very quickly. Christmas has been in the making literally before the world began. If you look at the Book of Revelation, it says that Easter was planned before the foundation of the world. Uh, before the foundation of the world, Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Therefore, if Easter had been planned before the world was created, Christmas had been planned. But we find the root of Christmas as early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 in your Bible. And here's what it says on the screen. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is God speaking. And he's saying, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come down. I'm going to descend to the earth in, the, in my son. And you are going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. You see, what had happened in the first part of Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve had failed to believe what God had told them. They had decided to be their own God. They believed the lie of Satan which says that God is withholding something from you. He doesn't want you to eat of this tree because there's something that God doesn't want you to have. Can I say something to you this morning? As a believer, God is going to give you everything that you need. And if God restricts something in your life, it's because you don't need it. It's not because he's trying to be the cosmic killjoy. It's not because he's trying to be the cosmic Grinch. It's because he's a good father. History's worst day led to one of, the, one of history's most beloved and celebrated days. You see, if Adam and Eve doesn't sin in the garden in Genesis 3, then there is no Matthew 1. We celebrate this joyous season on our calendar because of sin. If it had not entered into the world, uh, neither would have the Savior. Genesis 3 is the cause of Matthew 1. If Genesis 3 had not occurred, Christmas would not exist. Our first parents brought Christmas into this world through sin. They They brought a Christmas debt into the world that an eternal layaway plan could not pay off. Some of y'all are probably really good at Christmas and you don't go into a lot of debt to buy presents for people who already have everything, right? And some, uh, I worked at Walmart back in the late 80s when layaway was still a huge deal. And that was my job at Christmas was to work layaway. You will meet the devil in Lelway. And the devil comes in all shapes, form, and sizes in the Lelway department. You will hear words that you didn't even know existed. And most of them don't because I got a dictionary to try to find some of them and never could find them in the dictionary. When Adam and Eve sinned, they incurred a Christmas debt That if you had all of eternity to work, you could never pay back. Christmas reminds us of sin's bitterness, but simultaneously, it reinforces God's goodness towards sinners. So let me take this moment and reinforce a foundational truth. God takes ultimate evil and brings about ultimate good. If you don't don't leave here today with anything, you should leave here with that statement firmly entrenched in your mind. This is this is a foundational statement that we live our entire Christianity off of because we live in a world of ultimate evil and how do we live in a world of ultimate evil is because we know that we have a God who is of ultimate good and he brings ultimate good out of ultimate evil. So let me say it to you this way. God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. Some people ask the question, well, if God knew they were going to sin, why did He let them, why did He create them to begin with? Why did He put them in the garden to begin with? Why did He allow this horrendous event to take place? It's because God will permit what He hates to accomplish what He loves. There's a great mystery throughout Scripture. This mystery exists to remind us who God is and who we are. And for the promotion of worship, not the, not the prevention of it. Can I, can I just implore you to do something this morning? When, when you run into the aspects of Scripture that are mysterious, cause you to scratch your head, cause you, know, cause you to have question after question after question, maybe sleepless nights, don't let mystery prevent you from worshiping God. Let it be the very act that promotes you to worship God. Listen, I, I, I've, I've got to go to the Grand Canyon. I've been to Niagara Falls. I've been to some pretty incredible scenic sites in my life. And listen, I don't understand how all of that came into being. But, I, you know, I, I, I didn't, when I went out to the Grand Canyon... And I, I just couldn't wait to get there. Couldn't wait for that day to get there that we could go to the Grand Canyon. I didn't sit around and try to figure out how it all happened. I didn't sit there and say, Well, you know what? I'm not going to sit here and just be awestruck by what I see until I figure out how all this happened. I didn't stand at, the, uh, at Niagara Falls and watch the water rush over, I mean, and just the rumble that you feel when you're standing there at the edge of the falls. I, I didn't look at it and say, you know what? Until I, until I get all the details on how the falls were formed and how all of this came into being, I'm just not going to be impressed by it. No, I didn't, have to, I, I didn't need anybody to tell me anything. The moment I saw it, There was nothing that prevented me from being in awe of what I saw because what I saw only promoted me to be in greater awe of what I saw. Listen, don't let what you do not understand about God or the scripture or the mystery surrounding God be something that prevents you from worshiping. Let it be the very promotion of your worship. So today I've tagged today's text because there's three sermons based on this thought the reason sin is the reason for the season so here's sermon number one the actual title is christmas gives us a new nature next week we're going to talk about christmas gives us a new name and then the third sermon is christmas gives us a new neighbor so christmas gives us a gift of a new nature a new name and a new neighbor so let's talk about our new nature look back at Matthew 1, now let's, let's read the uh, verses 18 through 21. Now the birth of Jesus took place this way. I love the word now is there. It doesn't say, and once upon a time. Because that's a fairy tale. Now, real life, this really did happen. That's why the last two years we wore our green shirts that say true story on it. That's why for two years we've given a little booklet to every person that's come to our Christmas extravaganza saying it's a true story. And we're not saying that people really don't believe that it's not a true story. They just don't believe how true the story really is. Now at the birth of Jesus took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to... Uh, put her to shame. Resolved to divorce her quietly, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, "Joseph, son of David." Can I stop right there for a second? That phrase, "Joseph, son of David," I could literally preach for hours on that that one that one phrase. H- have any of you ever wondered <clears throat> when you read your Old Testament? The Old Testament was pretty much written over a 2,000-year period, took 30, it consists of 39 books, several different authors. Any of you ever wondered? okay, so pretty much from the time that God created the world until Jesus comes, according to the Jewish calendars, about 4,000 years. Have any of you ever wondered why in the world did it take God 4,000 years to get Jesus here? I mean, could he not have expedited that situation just a little quicker? Why so long? Well, the answer to that is this guy named Joseph. You see, Joseph had to be the father of Jesus because Joseph was a son of David. He was from the lineage, the line of David. Prophecy had promised that the Messiah would come through the family of David. If you backed up, and I preached from this before, the, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17, it gives us the lineage of Jesus. These verses in Matthew are some of the most important and beautiful, and might I say life-changing, verses in all the Bible. There are many crooked branches in Jesus' family tree. Anybody in here got any crooked branches in your family tree? Any of y'all the crooked branch? It's okay to say if you are. You're among family. The truth be, we're all crooked branches. The family tree of Jesus teaches us an important truth. (laughs) I'm going to use a word my daughters use a lot. (laughs) Sketchy people get into God's family. (laughs) Sketchy people get into God's family. There's some sketchy characters in verses 1 through 17. I mean, really sketchy people. But let me ask you a question. Aren't you glad that sketchy people can get into the family of God? I am. And you should be too, because guess what? You're sketchy. We all are sketchy. So here's what we need to walk away from this morning. Sin is the reason for the season. Christmas gives us a new nature. Write this down. I had a really good outline, but the printer would not cooperate this morning. So you're just going to have to either listen or scribble us down on a sheet of paper, every how you take notes. Point number one this morning is we are depraved. They'll, They'll be on the screen, the points will. We are depraved. We need a new nature. Christmas gives us a new nature because the nature that we have right now is depraved. And you may say, hmm, not really sure what that means. We'll get to that in a second. But... You need to write this down after that. We are depraved totally, but not absolutely. We are totally depraved, but not absolutely depraved. And you say, okay, you're going to have to help me even more now. Because I'm not really sure what depraved is. And you tell me I'm totally depraved, but not absolutely depraved. Well, here's what I mean by that. Let's work this out. Look, this first point is like the vast majority of the sermon. And then once we get past this, it, it just, I mean, it's like it's going to be over within a flash. So, here we, so listen hard here, and then it makes, the back, it makes the rest of it go real quick, okay? And understandable. So here's what we do not mean by total depravity, that all men and women are absolutely bad and depraved as they possibly can be. This inherited tendency to sin does not mean that human beings are all as bad as they could be. So here's, here's what we're talking about. Total depravity, total but not absolute, means that we're not as bad as we could be. We're bad, but we're not as bad as we could be. And why are we not as bad as we could be? Well, here's some reasons. The constraints of civil law. How many of y'all just don't do stuff because you don't want to go to jail? Huh? I mean, anybody in here ever wanted to beat the fool out of somebody? I mean, really? You just want to beat the fool? How many of you have ever been driving down the road? Now, Curtis has never experienced this because he experiences it in other ways. But how many of you have ever been driving down the road... And you just wanted to take your car and use it as a guided missile to take somebody else out. Why don't you do that? I don't do it because I've been to prisons, teaching Bible studies. And um, I just, that, yeah, I just don't want to be there. I mean, I, I'll be there for Jesus Ambition, but I don't want to live there. So, civil law keeps us from being as bad as we could be. How about the expectations of family? Now, this doesn't work on everybody, but there's a lot of us who we could have done some stuff that we didn't do just because of the family that we lived in, right? Because some of y'all know if, if you would have done some of the stuff that you could have done, you'd have got the fool beat out of you. Or the shame that it would have brought on your family. And then some of us don't do some of the stuff that we could do because we got a conscience. We've been given a conscience by God. So those are some constraining elements in our lives that keep us from being absolutely depraved. We're totally depraved, but we're not absolutely depraved. Therefore, by God's common grace, that is, by his undeserved favor that is given to all human beings, people have been able to do much good in the areas of education, the development of civilizations, scientific and technological progress, the development of beauty and skill in the arts, the development of just laws, and general acts of human benevolence and kindness to others. Common grace. Okay? So, we're not as bad as we could be but we're still bad. I like the way Spurgeon wrote it. This is going to come up on the screen. Spurgeon just has a way of saying things. He says, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every human, I mean, every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. The venom of sin is in the very fountain of your being. It has poisoned your heart. It is in the very marrow of your bones and is as natural to us as anything that belongs to us. So what is he saying? He's just saying that sin permeates every fiber of our body. That's why we mean it's total but not absolute. Every molecule, every part of the helix of our DNA is tainted with sin. This Christmas truth disarms the people who think that they can get into heaven because they're good. It also attacks the easy believism gospel that basically says uh, that you're not all that evil. You're just not all that good. You need to be rehabilitated. A lot of our salvific preaching is not a redemption preaching, it's rehabilitation preaching. What, what do we want to do? We want to take somebody that's bad and try to make them better. And the Bible simply doesn't teach that. The Bible's trying to teach that salvation is God raises dead people to life. God's not into rehabilitation. He's into redemption. Second, it does, it, uh, it does not even mean that men and women in their fallen state have no innate knowledge of God. So look at these verses that are uh, going to come up out of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all mankind, are all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for the immortal uh, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They are totally depraved and still have a sense of God within them. So, the fact that we are totally depraved doesn't mean that we can't, that we have no knowledge of God. We do have a knowledge of God. It also does not mean that men and women do not have a conscience. Therefore, it does not mean that they have no knowledge of good and evil. So, totally depraved doesn't mean that we don't have a conscience. We do. People in a state of total depravity do have a conscience, and they recognize the difference between good and evil. Listen to Romans 2.15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Total depravity does not mean that men and women are incapable of recognizing or admiring virtues. Just because we're totally depraved doesn't mean that Again, we can't do good or recognize good, okay? It doesn't mean that we ha- we have an incapability of doing good. Finally, total, by total depravity, we do not mean that every unregenerate person will indulge in every form of sin. Listen, I'll just be honest with you. There are some people that are straight up admitted, that admit that to not being a Christian that often act more Christian than a lot of Christians that I know. Amen? Y'all ever, y'all met some of those people? I tell you what, some of the most generous people in this world are unbelievers. And that blows my mind. I've told you this before. I don't think there's anybody more generous than Bill Gates with his money. As a matter of fact, when he dies, he, he already has it willed that 100% of all of his wealth will be d- dispersed among, um, among a handful of charities. Nothing being left to his children, his grandchildren, his extended family. But Bill Gates is not a professing believer. As a matter of fact, what I've read about him, he's not atheistic, but he's pretty much agnostic. So uh, So then, ask someone, what does it mean? Well, positively, it means that man in his fallen condition has an inherently corrupt nature, and the corruption extends through every part of his being and to every faculty of his soul and body. So there's not any part of you that's not tainted by sin. It also means that there is no spiritual good in him. Yes, there is plenty of natural good. There is a natural morality. He can recognize virtue and so on, but there is no spiritual good whatsoever. It is not just that some parts of us are sinful and others are pure. Rather, every part of our being is affected by sin. Listen, our intellects, our emotions, our desires, our hearts, that's the center of of our desires and decision-making process. Our goals and our motives and even our physical bodies. Paul says in Romans 7:18, "I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh." And then in Titus 1:15, Paul says, "To the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure, their very minds and conscience are corrupted." Moreover, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt, who can understand it in Jeremiah 17:9. In these passages, Scripture is not denying that unbelievers can do good in human society in some senses, but it is denying that they can do any spiritual good or be good in terms of a relationship with God. Apart from the work of Christ in our lives, we are like all other unbelievers who, according to Ephesians 4.18, are darkened in their understanding, understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So, the great characteristic of total depravity is that every unregenerate person is at war with God and God's holy law. To put it another way, all that person's powers are misused and perverted. Now, let me give you the scriptures to prove this. Genesis 6-5 says this. This is... In the days of Noah, the, law, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a pretty comprehensive statement, isn't it? Or how about this? How about Psalm 51 5? Behold, this is David, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's not saying that the act of conception is sinful. It's just saying that when we are conceived... We are conceived a sinner because we are of Adam's seed. There, <clears throat> there again is an account of this total depravity, brought forth in iniquity, conceived in sin. I trust that no one is befuddled as to why we are going into all this. The obvious explanation is that no one can have a true or adequate understanding of the scriptural doctrine of salvation. Not one of us can appreciate our own salvation truly, unless we realize the nature of the condition out of which we were saved by the gospel. In other words, we must understand the truth about ourselves and sin. We can never really know the love of God until we realize this. Put that next statement up on the screen. This you should write down. I did all of that work on... And and look, that's that's like a a 50,000 foot flyover of human depravity. The way to measure the height of of God's love is first of all to measure the depth of our own depravity as a result of the fall. You understand what I'm saying in that? You will never understand how much God loves you until you understand how deep your depravity really is. We don't sit around thinking about our sin in a morbid way that paralyzes us from walking with God, the reason why we consider what a great sinner that we are so that we can see what a great Savior He is. I believe it was John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, who said something to this effect. He said, he said I did not realize what, how great God was until I realized how great a sinner I was. That leads me to the second understanding from this text. We need a new nature because not only are we depraved, but we are dead. We are dead. We are dead. So we are totally depraved, but not absolutely. But listen, we're dead. We have total inability. Somebody tell me a story of the last time you saw a dead person doing something. The last time you saw a dead person get up, walk around, eat, cook a meal. You don't. But why? Because dead people don't have any abilities. And obviously this is referring to spiritual powers. Because we are spiritually dead. We have no ability to awaken ourselves... Spiritually. The Bible teaches that man is totally incapable. Again, this does not mean that he cannot perform any natural good. Of course he can. It's obvious. It does not mean that he is incapable of civic good and righteousness because, of course, he is, and history is proof. Indeed, it does not even mean that he is not capable of an external kind of religion. He is capable. A man can be very religious, and yet we still say of him that he is totally depraved and totally incapable. Is totally incapable in the sense that all his actions are defective. Good though they may be in many ways, because they are not prompted by a love of God and by a concern for the will and the glory of God. So, though actions may be morally good in and of themselves, they are useless because their motive is not true. We declare on scriptural authority that the human will is so desperately set on mischief, so depraved, so inclined to everything that is evil, so disinclined to everything that is good, that without the powerful, supernatural, irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit, no human will can ever be constrained towards Christ. Spurgeon said that. When we say that man is totally incapable, we mean that he cannot do any act which, is, which fundamentally meets with God's approval. Or which, meets, or which meets the demands of God's law. Romans 3.10 says this, There is no one that is righteous, not one. How about 3.23? All have sinned and come short of God's glory. All the goodness of the world is as filthy rags. Isaiah 64.6 All the goodness of the world is as dung and refuse and loss. Ultimately, it has no value because it cannot win God's approval or satisfy God's law. Do you get the sense that you have no ability? You, you, there is there's, there's nothing in you that can make yourself right and, and, and good to God. By total incapability, we also mean that man cannot change his fundamental preference for sin and self. He cannot change his nature. He cannot get rid of this depravity, which I've been defining. So I go a little further. He cannot even... Uh, He cannot make even an approach to such a change, to getting rid of it. He can do nothing about his fallen condition, and he has no appreciation at all for spiritual truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Read that chapter very carefully and you will find that the apostle's entire case is that the natural person, this person who is in the condition of the flesh, not not only cannot change his nature, but he has no understanding or appreciation of spiritual truth. You ever wondered why you can be in a service and see somebody get saved and know that they're Somebody else that's in the service who needs to be saved but totally unmoved by what they hear? It takes spiritual ears to understand what the Spirit is saying. And unless God gives that and grants that through salvation, then there's no way we can understand what is spiritual. Why is this? Well, Paul answers his own question in the second chapter of Ephesians where he tells us in the first verse that the natural are dead in trespasses and sin. This is an absolute statement of inability. Let me give you some other scripture, scriptures. The new person in Christ is described in John one 12 through 12-13. It says this, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God who were born, not of blood, but of the not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of God, but of man. But to all who received him, who believed his name, he gave them right. John six forty four says, no one can come to God except the father that has sent him draws them. Hey, think about this for a second. As a Christian, what does the Bible say about us? That apart from Christ, we can do what? Nothing. Let me ask you a question. If a Christian apart from Christ can do nothing, then how in the world can a non-Christian apart from the Spirit do something? It's impossible. So these are the two great effects of sin. So what are the consequences? This is where we pick up the pace and come to a conclusion. Here it is. Here's, Here's the good news. You're doomed. We're doomed. We are. We're doomed. We're depraved. We're dead. Consequence, we're doomed. Doomed to what? Doomed to an eternal sentence. An eternal sentence. Two Corinthians five ten says that we all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Nobody's skipping out on this, you know. Nobody's skipping out on this judgment. Um, I won't. We won't read all this, but Revelation twenty eleven through five talks about the two different judgments. It talks that there's a there's a great white throne judgment where all those who are Christians are judged based on their works. So those are the people that are being judged because of what they did with Christ, or excuse me, what they did for Christ. Now listen, they're not being judged in order to get into heaven. They are being judged for what they did for Christ so that they can be rewarded in heaven. They're not being rewarded with heaven. They're being rewarded in heaven. Make sense? So the judgment Okay, so if you're a Christian, you're going to get judged. You're going to get judged on your works. But that judgment is not determinative to whether you get into heaven. It's going to be determinative of what your reward in heaven is going to be. Then it goes down to say that there's a second judgment. And that judgment is the judgment of what people did with Christ. So the judgment of Christians, what you did for Christ The judgment of non-Christians, what you did with Christ. What does that mean? What did you do with him? Here's the preacher this morning, December the 8th, 2019, preaching to you the gospel. You hear the message that you are depraved, you're dead, you're doomed. What did you do with that message? Did you reject it? You must have, because that's why you're being judged of what you did with Christ. So there's a sentence that's going to be passed. Then there's a separation, a separation. So we are doomed to an eternal sentence. We're doomed to an eternal separation. If you don't accept Christ, then according to Luke 16, uh, uh, 23 through 25, uh, this is talking about Lazarus. It says that in Hades being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham. Where was he? Far off. And Lazarus sat his side and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip his, the end of his finger in the water to cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham uh, said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is in anguish. But now he is, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us is fixed a great chasm. In order that those who would pass from here to there to you may not be able to and none may cross from there to us. Okay? So there's an eternal separation. A sentence, a separation, and then look lastly, an eternal suffering. An eternal suffering. It said, where was he? He was in torment. This is what you're doomed to without Christ torment, crying out for mercy, just wanting him to dip his tip of his finger into the water to cool his anguish. Some people have said, Brother Jason, do you believe that hell is a literal place of fire? I don't know. But I know this, it's, it's not anything less than that. I know this, hell is the most awful place that's ever been created. What, to whatever glory that you think heaven is, know that hell is equally is equal it's just on the opposite end of the scale. So as great as heaven is, hell is going to be that much worse. I don't know if it'll be literal fire, but it won't be anything less than that. So let me give you the good news. This is the actual good news. The good news wasn't that you were doomed. You're depraved. You're dead. You're doomed. But guess what? We, needed a del- we need a deliverer. And that brings us all the way back to where we started. Right? Back to Matthew chapter one. We needed a deliverer. Now watch. Here's what we needed needed the deliverer to do. Number one, we needed him to descend. We need the deliverer to come down. What did it say? His name shall be called Emmanuel. Look, look at verse 23. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. How about that? God, God, the son left the glories of heaven and came down. Again, I'll say this. I'll say this till I'm no longer here. And after I leave here, I'll say it wherever I go next. There's one thing that makes Christianity radically different than all other religions in the world. And when people say that all roads lead to Jesus, you tell them it doesn't because all roads say, you know what, this is how you get to God. And here's what Christianity is different. Have you ever seen the drawing where you got God up on top of the mountain and you got all the the roads leading up to God and people are right, Mormonism, Christianity, Christianity, Uh, Islam, they'll write all the world's religions. It's all going to the same point. Here's what you need to do. If you see that picture and somebody says, see, everything leads to God. Take where God is and draw a line straight down. And then you tell them, this is why Christianity is different. Because nobody goes up to God, God came down to us. That's what religion tells you to do. This is how you get to God. And Christianity and the Bible teaches you and me that God didn't ask us to come up to him. He says, I'm coming down to you. Why? Because you're dead. You can't come up. Make sense? Not rocket science, is it? If you're dead, how in the world can you get up the mountain to God? You see, Jesus came down and then went up the mountain and took what we deserved so that we could go up to God. So he must descend, and then listen, he must be different. Folks, church, he's born a he's born of a virgin. He's born of a virgin. Can I say it one more time? He's born of a virgin. Yes, he's like us. He's nine months in his mother's womb. He's birthed into this world just like every other human baby has ever been born into this world. He grows up just like every other human being has ever grown up. He faces every temptation that every human being that's ever been born faces, and he does it all without sin. Why? Because he's just a little different than you and I. Oh, no, he's a whole lot different than you and I are. Have y'all ever watched Superman? Man of Steel? Any of those movies? What are they always looking at Clark Kent? They're like, you know what? Clark's just a little different than us. He looks like us. He, he acts like us. But there's stuff about Clark that's just different. I, I mean, there's something about him that's otherworldly. And when you look at Jesus, you would say, he looks like us. He talks, I mean, you know, he sounds like us. He eats like us. But he's different than us. And the reason why he's different is because he was born a virgin. He was not born of the seed of man, but the seed of woman, according to Genesis 3.15. And that makes him without sin. And then he lived without sin. And then, not only did he descend, but here is my last point. <clears throat> so, let's, let's, let's put it all together real quick. So, we're depraved. We're dead. We're doomed. That's, that's, that's the reality. Okay. He descends, right? He descends... He's different. And then he dies. Why does he have to die? So let's go all the way back to the end. I mean, to the beginning of Genesis. Adam and Eve sin, right? Adam and Eve sinned. God comes down. He pronounces judgment. And then there's this little verse at the end of the chapter that most people just, they just buzz right on by. And all of a sudden, they, you remember they were naked and not ashamed, right? Then they sin. And all of a sudden they look like, whoa, hey, what? big leaves, cover up. Can I tell you a quick little, give you a little sermon right there? Man will always try to deal with his own sin in his own way. But notice how God deals with their sin. They, they grab vegetation, God grabs an animal. Because at the, end of the, at, at the very end of chapter three, what does it say? That he clothes them with the skin of animals. Listen, no animal in the garden had ever sinned. They were spotless. They were perfect. And God set up at the very outset of sin that guess what? The only way to deal with sin is something that's innocent and perfect and without blemish has to die in the place of people who sin. That's the only way you can be right with me. So I'm going to take the skin of a dead perfect animal and I'm going to clothe you with it so that you and I can stay in fellowship with each other. So Jesus comes down. This is why he is the Lamb of God. He is slaughtered, right? He is killed. Why? Because he is righteous and perfect and without sin. And the only way you and I could get back into relationship with God is for his life to transfer over to our life by an act of faith called salvation. Why? So that we could be right with God. That baby that we're going to see pictures of lying in a manger, and we're going to read the story and maybe watch some movies that people have depicted about it, that baby is lying in that manger for one reason, to be slaughtered, because you and I are depraved, Dead and doomed, but he descended so that you and died so that you and I could be redeemed. And remember what I said to you earlier? You will not ever experience the richness and the depth of the love of God until you stack all of that together and, med- and meditate on that day and night that you really realize what a great sinner you are, that will not overcome you if while you're looking at that, you're looking at what a great Savior he is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what more can we say? You descended. You were different than us. And you died for us so that we could be like you. As we were reminded of yesterday on the back of the green shirts that many of us wore. The son of God became a man so that men and women could become sons of God. Father, we have an inheritance that is so far beyond anything that we can imagine not because of anything that we've done because we couldn't have done anything. But it's ours because of what Christ has done for us. And it is only ours because you enabled us by your grace to place our faith and trust in your son as our savior. And so father, for those that maybe haven't done that today, I pray that right now you would just grant them faith to believe that maybe for the first time they will have realized that they are depraved and they are dead and they are doomed, but that you descended and you died so that they might be saved. And then, Father, for those of us that have been saved and are saved, deepen us, help us to really understand when we say the love of God, to have a greater appreciation of that. And as we further go into this Christmas season, that we would further understand because sin brought you into the world, that you are willing to come into the world so that we could become a son and daughter of God. Help us to grow in that truth. In Christ's name, amen. I want you to stand and let's sing this last song together this morning.